The first reading this morning comes from James at the end of the third chapter, verse 16, through the fourth chapter, verse 1. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? And the gospel reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is be to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. We ask your blessings on these readings and understandings of the word from the scriptures. Thank you, Bill. In your pew backs, there are these little black books. This is your cue, Neil. Uh, these little black books. Uh, our hymnal came out in the 80s, and there's been more hymnody and songs that have been uh, lifted up. And uh, the one I want to start with, because I think we're going to find our sentence of truth in it, is song 2222, the servant song. And I would like for you to allow me to sing the first stanza to you, and then I invite all of us to sing the second stanza together. sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. Everyone, second stanza. We are pilgrims on a journey. We're to that speak of selfless servitude, of walking with one another instead of seeking to be exalted above any other. 
I mentioned at the beginning of the service that church that gave me my third grade Bible, and, and churches kind of do on regular basis whatever the lead pastor really likes to do. <laughs> and the pastor that was there when I was growing up for more than 20 years, he had a real affinity to a very selfless prayer that has been a part of the Methodist, the Wesleyan way. It's called the prayer of the, the covenant prayer. And I want to begin this sermon by reading this selfless prayer, although I want you to know it's a contemporary version. I have taken out the these, the thous, the thines, and the wilts. And so let's receive this prayer. I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, a wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made here on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. That's a wonderful prayer that really seeks God's way more than our own selfish ambition kinds of ways. And it's the exact kind of prayer that the disciples would absolutely not have had on their lips or their hearts or their minds in the text that Bill read for us today. No, their thoughts were occupied with something else. As a matter of fact, we're going to see these uh, disciples who are talking to another. We're never given their words. All we receive in the text from the gospel is silence. Once out of fear and the other out of shame. Jesus was telling them, look, guys, I'm going to be killed. Three days, I'm going to come back. It's not the first time they've heard this, but they reject it. They reject that teaching. It says they were afraid to ask because they did not understand. What's so difficult to understand? Haven't they read the 28th chapter of Matthew? Oh, that's right. It hasn't happened yet. No resurrection. We have resurrection eyes. But surely they must have believed everything that he said. I mean, three of them, just a little while earlier, had this incredible experience. They're up on a mountaintop, and, and he shines brightly, and he's not alone. All of a sudden, there is Elijah and Moses, and these three can't believe it. And they come down, and then they join the others, and then all 12 see yet again another miracle happening. And in this miracle, Jesus says, anything is possible if a person believes. And they had to say, Awesome! My guess is witnessing from the front row those miracles never got boring for them. I think they tucked each one away and thought, man, this guy's great, and man, we're his inner circle. There are great things coming for us. Great things coming for us. They were afraid to say they didn't understand. Maybe they just didn't want to hear it. La, 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 I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you like a child. I think I've shared before at one of my churches, this couple had a daughter with two hearing aids, and any time the parents were trying to be stern with her, she would take those hearing aids out and just kind of look at her. Or maybe they heard what he said and knew that it was going to be true, and they just didn't want to deal with it. But I really believe they didn't understand because they were still focused, locked in on their own greatness 
And they had been bickering with one another about which one of them was actually going to be the greatest. And so Jesus busts them on it. He says, what were you guys arguing about on the way back there? But they were silent, for they had argued who was to be the greatest. They were silent because they were ashamed, because Jesus knew. They knew he knew, and he knew they knew he knew, you know? I'm glad I didn't mess that up. My guess is they were kicking the dirt, trying not to make eye contact. When we know that we are guilty and we're being called on it, a lot of us, it's an uncomfortable situation. We don't want to make this eye contact. They were busted because they were thinking of worldly things. They were thinking of of Jesus rallying an army and just kicking those Romans out of the country. Go back home to where you belong and let us be restored into this uh, King David kind of model. But Jesus was going to be a different kind of king. And Jesus is going to define greatness in ways that are far different than the way the world defines greatness. I mean, Merriam-Webster, our dictionary.com, says the equality of being great, distinguished, or eminent. But for Jesus, it is different. But how do you and I define greatness in our culture today? Do we define it by a vote, by a level of power? As we heard within this last year, we have, I fear, confused power with greatness. Do we define greatness by wealth in our very affluent first world kind of a country? We know that wealth and greatness are almost synonymous with one another in our culture. Do we simply define greatness by someone who has done something extraordinary or something that no one else has even had the vision to do yet, to open up a whole new horizon? We're all familiar with that cliche, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. But we have to stop and ask, what is it about our human desire to be the greatest and to have the greatest that motivates us? Don't we know that marketing capitalizes on these attitudes? 19th century preacher Henry Ward Beecher said this, Greatness lies not in being strong, but in the right using of strength. And strength is not used rightly when it serves only to carry a man above his fellows for his own solitary glory. He is the greatest whose strength carries up the most hearts by the attraction of his own. And a heart filled with envy or selfish ambition is not an attractive heart. It's not going to draw people to him or her. I came across a story from a man named Harry Adams this week. I, I had no idea who Harry Adams is. I doubt very much you know who Harry Adams is. And if you know a Harry Adams, it's probably not this Harry Adams. But he was in charge of a very important annual corporate event, and it was his year to, to decide the, the seat placements. Any of you who've ever been in charge of a wedding know that there's, that's a, a tricky thing, right? You've got to put the right people with the right people in the right places because well, we can't get those two people together because they're, they're clashing with one another and, and everyone, you don't want to put them in the back of the room, we'll never hear the end of it, we don't, you know. And so he did this, but it was the head table that was the important one. And in the center of the head table was going to be the presenter for that day. And so there was a man with lots of years of experience, and he put him at the end of the table on one end, and then somebody who was new to the organization in between he and another one who had experience. And Mr. Adams did that so that the man who was new could really be nurtured and coached along, that they could be whispering in his ear. 
Unless Mr. Adams was in the back of the room doing some other task that was assigned to him, he watched the guy who was supposed to be at the end of the table walk over to the head table and take a look at the name cards. Then pick up his name card, walk it over to be right next to the one who was the presenter, take the name card that had been there, and move it over to where his original spot had been. And here's what Adams had to say about that. There was a pathos about the man who was so concerned about where he sat at the head table that he would take it upon himself to change the place cards. He continued, it is sad for a person to be so consumed with what others think about him, to be so insecure in who he is that he must seek public recognition of importance. Sometimes it's our false sense of pride or our inflated sense of self that that makes us behave so terribly to appear to be great, but in other times it's insecurity that can cause us to overvalue what position really means, to overvalue what it is to appear to be great. At our Wednesday lectionary group, one individual said, when I'm not comfortable with who I am, I find that I kind of overcompensate to try and appear to be great. My wife is a public school teacher, and we know that there is bullying on third grade playgrounds, there's bullying in high schools, but there's also bullying in colleges and bullying in the workplace. And we know that bullying is born out of insecurity, needing to feel more important than you really are, and then to accomplish that, making somebody else seem to be less Last week, we heard it's in our human nature that we are tribal. We want to belong. We want to connect. We want that identity. But it is also within our human nature that we are hierarchical, that we seem to need pecking orders. Every tribe has its chiefs and its elders. Think about our gangs and an organized crime of the mafia. They have chosen that tribe to identify with, and yet they knock one another off to try and get to be the one who is seen as the king to have the most power. And so we need to ask, can the pursuit of greatness by the wrong definition actually in turn become the enemy of goodness? Can the pursuit of greatness be the enemy of goodness? And so Jesus teaches. Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus always used these object lessons. Someone was out there planting a field, and he would make an illustration of it. Somebody's going to the temple and placing a a coin in the box, and Jesus makes an illustration out of it. But why would Jesus use a child? What is, is Jesus trying to say? I mean, in our culture, there is nothing more precious than a child. Just this morning at 8 o'clock out at the park where we were worshiping, a grandmother said, come here, I want to show you a picture. And it was a picture of a grandchild. I mean, that's a a grandparent's prerogative. How many of you who are grandparents have pictures of grandchildren with you at all times? Good on you. That's part of the gig. I remember when Janet and I went to visit my mother who was living in a retirement community, a gated community, Hot Springs Village. We went into the church with our two children who were both under the age of three, and it was like rock stars had just walked into the church. But it wasn't that way when Jesus walked the earth. 
I mean, why was he using a child? Because they're the symbol of innocence? Because they're not yet consumed with greatness or because they represent the future? No, it's because they represented one who had no status. One who was seen more as a burden because the resources were tight and am I going to eat or not today? We know that if it was a girl child in that patriarchal day, that that child did not have as much value even as the male child for salvation came through birthing a son. And the disciples of Jesus certainly would have said, those disciples aren't supposed, or those children aren't supposed to be with the men. They're supposed to be with their mothers. To hold up a child and stand for himself was to offer a serious challenge to the social norms of that day. To welcome the child in their midst is to make space for those with no social status. It shows what we already know, Jesus' attention to the poor and the helpless, which in that society, if you were great, you would have no time for. No time whatsoever. And so Mr. Adams, who told the story about the name cards, when he reflects on this passage, he says, We are truly significant when we welcome Jesus in the child who finds comfort and aid and security in the arms in which we enfold her. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Scholars believe that that catchphrase was already very, very popular throughout first century Christianity. But it's a reminder to us to not measure ourselves by others, but to measure our own lives by him, by Christ. And yet we do not do that. We are filled with envy and selfish ambition. And that's why I had uh, Bill read the text from James. James is talking about this, about envy and selfish ambition. It's the kind of ambition that is all about you, that is fueled only by your being discontented because someone else has gotten ahead of you or has more than you, and you want that. It's the kind of ambition, envy and selfishness, that will eat you alive. Now, Jesus wasn't against ambition. Uh, James wasn't against ambition, but ambition for the right things. To measure ourselves not by what the others have, but by who Jesus is. Now, of course, we know that that kind of uh, desire for greatness, that envy, that selfish ambition would never make its way into a church, right? No, we're a human institution. Coretta Scott King said this, the greatness of a community, and that's what we are, friends. We are a community of faith. The greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. How are we doing? We know that there are churches that are consumed with greatness by worldly standards to be elitist churches, to have the best choir, to have the most expensive pipe organ, to have the stained glass that costs more than any stained glass anywhere else in the world. We know that amongst clergy, especially in an itinerant system, there is great fighting and, and, and clergy that use uh, congregations as stepping stones to get to where they want to be. That there is resentment that this person got appointed there and I didn't. We know that there's a desire for leadership. We even know that about four decades ago, a man who wanted to be bishop, who thought his wife was holding him back, had her murdered. Sin, sin, sin. Now, we here at the United Methodist Church of Whitefish Bay take for granted. You know, a lot of our young people just think that, that women were always allowed ordination in full status. And even though the 1950s seemed like two millennium ago for them, for many of us, we were still alive. And there was a battle. 
And quite a struggle it's been. And Wisconsin Annual Conference has always been a leader. We had the first uh, female bishop uh, serve us. We've had other female bishops uh, provide leadership for us. We have, we have put female clergy into leadership. Bishop Sharon Rader served us, led us for uh, 12 years, which is longer than what a bishop is usually afforded. And she held a, a meeting just for female clergy. Now, obviously, I was not invited, but there was a mole in there who came out and told me how this meeting went. You see, she noticed that there was envy and selfish ambition. And she gathered those female clergy in this room and used a really old analogy about a big bucket of crabs. And as soon as one crab starts to get to the top, the others seek to pull it back down. She encouraged them to support one another, to not strive for greatness by, by earthly standards, by what other people have or the opportunities other people get, but to measure greatness the same way that Jesus measured greatness, through service, not celebrity. Don't measure yourself by others. Measure yourself by him. And we know that history shows that a belief in God, no matter what your kind of understanding or belief in God is, your belief in God has shown a particular ability to make people care about others. And that is precisely what many people believe secular society is missing. We know that our culture is becoming less and less Christian all the time. And that there is kind of a persecution, a Western hatred for, for religion Christians are being told to just kind of stay in their lane, stay in your own antiquated, outdated practices. We know that it is being attacked in media, in universities, academic settings, and in public life. And as one social commentator said, yeah, Christians, stay to yourself while atheist ministries take over the scene with vigorous preaching of a godless gospel. One of the things that pains me is how we deify celebrities and athletes and call them great. Friends, you can be a great actress and be a terrible human being. You can be a great athlete and be a terrible human being. I mean, our city fell in love with Giannis, right? Ever since he came here as a skinny uh, teenager, there's no doubt about the greatness he has on the court. But there are a lot of people in our metro area who are just holding our breath because he appears to be a truly great human being too. And yet our hearts are crushed all the time. We need to be careful about putting certain people because of a, a unique ability up on a pedestal. The major league baseball player who was deemed to be the greatest at his time, the, the one who has the highest career batting average ever, uh, 367. And by the way, we all celebrated the Brewers uh, clinching playoffs against the Cubs. Sorry, Cub fan. I'm sorry, Dick, for, for your loss and your hurt. But Ty Cobb, Ty Cobb was seen as the greatest hitter of his age, but history has shown that he was a vile and violent racist and an overall nasty-tempered man in all things. Is that greatness? Is that the greatness we want to achieve? As a matter of fact, for the very first in class inducted into Cooperstown, the Hall of Fame, uh, Babe Ruth was there, Walter Johnson was there, Connie Mack was there, and they realized that everyone was there except for Ty Cobb, and so they said, quick, quick, take the official picture before he comes. It's true. 
if he were really a great human being, a selfless servant leader who could just really hit the ball tremendously, do you think they would have waited for him to be at that picture? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we even kind of call some of our, our sports stars royalty. King LeBron. Remember when King LeBron was going to leave Cleveland and go elsewhere, and he held this, this TV show on ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, and millions of people watched, and he said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. Does anyone remember that? Sports fans anywhere? Why do we hold that up? Why can't we see one another as the most valuable uh, free agents to ever hit the market? You know, next week is our ministry fair. We're in between the services and after the last service. Our ministries are going to be represented. It would be awesome if it was a day just like today so we could do it all outside on the lawn. Pray for that, would you? Um, But what if we valued one another's servant leadership the same way we value someone who can throw a ball or do a 360 dunk. So we had this great, awesome video that's going to be put up online um, where Pastor Andrew does a mock sports center. And instead of Scott Van Pelt, you know, going through the, the news of the day, it's, it's Andrew. And I'm just going to, we'll just go ahead and show it, even though we're not going to be able to hear it. I'll, I'll walk you through it, because Andrew, Andrew's pretty, pretty creative. Yeah, this was great. So he comes on, and he's got the the sports show thing, and here he is. He's talking about the draft, the upcoming draft, and all the prospects that are out there and how every team is salivating on draft picks but also on uh, uh, free agents. And he's going through the, the gifts that each and every one of them have, but there's one who is seen to be especially great, Bettine Carey. Bettine Carey, who works downstairs with our carpenter shop, and she has all kinds of gifts to give. And so he's going to go through, and he, here, she's a four-tool player, right? She's, she's compassionate. She has a mission mind. She has patience, creativity, fantastic smile. What, what ministry group wouldn't want to have her? And so he, he continues to go on through this, and I hope you will watch it online later this week. It's going to come time to the big decision. It is time. Is she going to go on the prayer team? We have a prayer team. Is she going to make Neil's life so much better by going into the choir? Is she going to be a part of our finance team that helps us stay faith? Or is she going to be youth ministry? She's narrowed down her her choices to four things. And here comes the big announcement. Millions of people are watching Ministry Center. And here's, here's Bettine Carey. And she says, I decide that I am going to take my talents to... Everyone do a little drum roll. Carry to serve the youth, and the crowd goes crazy, and we are all happy, and there's the final report. And so you can go ahead and fast forward to that. It would have been so much better had it been actually the audio there instead of me doing it. But why do we ascribe greatness to certain things that really don't embedder lives, that really don't fight against hunger or any kind of exclusivity? Why aren't we rolling up our sleeves to make the communities in which we live, where we sit, our own backyard, the kind of place that that God calls us to make it? And so, yes, friends, this passage that Bill read for us demands from us a decision. It really does. Are we willing to accept the kind of authority that this Messiah is willing to give us to become servant leaders We are all called to radical servant leadership. What's your decision going to be? 
And so I started this sermon with a selfless prayer, a prayer that was not self-centered but came from a centered self, and I want us to end with one as well. And so will you join with me in another uh, wonderful traditional prayer, the prayer of St. Francis. And so in one voice, let us pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And when there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. May it be so, my servant leaders.